Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined, as always, by Sarah Beijung of Bowdoin College. Uh, Sarah, how was tech? Tech went, went pretty well. So, you know, fingers crossed we are, we're in dress rehearsals this week and, and we open on Friday. And this is um, Carol Churchill's Love and Information, right? This is Love and Information. That's right. Um, how many? And how for many? those of you outside the area, you can get more information by downloading our app. We actually made a show app in the <laughs> iOS App Store. Oh, so that's if you If you search Love and Information, you will get the Bowdoin College uh, uh, Theater and Dance Department show app for Love and Information. I will definitely check that out. Um, and I am joined as well by Harvey Young of Boston University. How's it going, Harvey? Uh, I'm doing well. It's good yeah. to see you. You too. You're you're sort of halfway through your first semester in your new gig. How are you, how are you holding up? I think I'm only a third of the way through. That, that that's the challenge of the quarter to semester conversion. It's like I it goes bet. from ten to fifteen weeks. Yeah, but it's going well. It's going well. I'm really enjoying myself here at Boston University. Uh, but you know, I did have this moment where I realized that I'm at week five. So I thought I'm halfway through the semester, and I realized no, it's a third of the way through the semester. So that's yeah. the transition. I think I, I think that was wishful thinking on my part too. I would like to think I'm halfway through my semester as well. <laughs> I have been enjoying your uh, all your social media shares, uh, Harvey, in terms of stuff that's going on with with you know BU Arts and and the folks involved with it. That's really great to see. There's a lot happening here. Clearly. <laughs> Um, so today on the podcast, we are going to talk about um, three exciting topics, um, uh, timely topics, all of them. Uh, we are going to talk about the Olympics, the Olympic Games that just wrapped up in Pyeongchang, Korea. We're going to be joined by Walter Byonsok Chon of Ithaca College, who is going to give us his perspective on those games. And we'll talk about, I don't know, anything and everything, ice dancing, uh, Johnny Weir, I hope, drones who knows um we're also going to talk about adrian kennedy um she has uh had a new play um produced in new york and there have been interviews and and sort of um profile pieces published about this important american playwright um once again we will not have seen the play i don't think has anyone seen he brought her heart back in a box no well this is another one where we're going to talk about a play we haven't seen but we're going to um, guess Yes. Well, you can you get a lot from the program materials, um, but there's plenty to say there. And then finally, we're going to talk about notable retirements in theater and performance studies. Um, uh, is there a changing of the guards in process? Before we get to all of those topics, um, just a couple of news items that we wanted to mention. Um, the Brown Trinity MFA program uh, has announced that beginning next year, they are going to provide full tuition to all new and returning students in acting and directing. This is an initiative I know that um, Patricia Yabara has been working on for a while. Um, That's great. And she notes, yeah, and she notes in a statement that it is going to help artists pursue their careers without uh, the burden of debt after graduation. So that's awesome. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention, and maybe I shouldn't let the cat out of the bag now, but um, mark your calendars. On Tap is going to record a live show 
at Atha um, in August. Um, we actually have our time slot. Um, we are co-sponsored by PSFG and the Theory and Criticism Focus Group. Um, and so we are looking forward to seeing all of you on tap listeners in person and to record live. And I'm sure we'll have some um, surprises in store. But for now, get get yourself to Atha. So first up, in episode 21. Uh, we are excited to talk about the Olympic Games. Um, they just wrapped up in Pyeongchang, Korea. Um, there are so many different performative and sort of theatrical elements that are part of any Olymp- Olympic Games. Um, I was just uh, telling colleagues that I've been reading Richard Schechner's performance theory, and I think the Olympics are brought up in three different places. Um, so we wanted to talk about the Olympics, game, the Olympic Games as performance. We are super excited to be joined for this segment by uh, Walter Bjansak Chan, uh, who is at Ithaca College. Hi, Walter. Hello. Um, Walter, I will take this opportunity to to brag on him because he is a graduate of our MA program in in theater and performance studies here at WashU, um, and also has his MFA and DFA from the Yale School of Drama. And DFA candidate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, candidate for the moment. And we invited Walter because um, Walter is the managing editor of the South Korea. Uh, blog on thetheatertimes.com. We knew that he would have an interesting perspective on uh, not only the sort of dramaturgical elements of performance, but also the the, the way that the uh, games in Korea present or perform a kind of um, national identity or um, place of Korea in the world. So, uh, Walter, welcome to the podcast. And um, why don't you tell us uh, anything you'd like about your perspective on the, the games or the opening ceremony? Sure, sure. Uh, well, uh, first, uh, thank you for inviting me, um, inviting me to your podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Um, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, uh, overall, um, I mean, the Olympic, the opening ceremony, the games, and even the closing ceremony, it was a very touching experience for me watching it from, uh, from far away here in the U.S. I mean, these, the, the national games, the Olympics, the World Cups, uh, they are huge in Korea. I mean, in, in Korea, people would gather in front of the city hall, uh, fill the whole downtown to watch games televised, to watch televised games. So I was, of course, uh, sad I couldn't be there, but I was still happy that I could experience um, the feeling here. I think over, overall, the, the, cer- the, the opening ceremony was, um, I think it was beautifully done. It was very elegant. It... Um, embraced both the past, uh, the history, and the present of South Korea, and also um, where South Korea can go in its relation to North Korea. And what was particularly touching was that uh, there was a message of unification, of harmony, and the prospect of um, of North and South Korea joining, re- reuniting. And uh, I mean, it was particularly um, visible in the joint entrance of North and South Korea in the march and also the the female hockey team the joint women's hockey team and playing together so uh, overall um i mean the the the, ceremony, the opening ceremony itself with its use of technology its images images of the nature of the animals of the symbolic markers of Korea of ma- what makes Korea unique and also what makes Korea uh what what makes Korea stand out now in the contemporary society 
um, for example, the technology, uh, K-pop, which has become a phenomenon in the past um, decade. Uh, I was very happy to see all that, uh, all of those elements um, displayed in the ceremony. And um, one thing I one if I could offer one critical perspective, uh, and this this might be more of a critical perspective on the broadcast on the NBC broadcast, um, rather than the ceremony and the uh, and the Olympic itself. Um, I mean, of course, there was the uh, the the, <clears throat> the the mishap about um, an NBC announcer um, saying that Koreans really appreciated the Japanese occupation which was infuriating wow i miss i missed that that's terrible <laughs> yes that that happened during uh during the march when japan was entering and an nbc anchor uh said that how 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 uh, how grateful koreans were are of the occupation which has no basis in any truth uh i mean it is it's not that far it's it's not that that long ago it was only a little over half a um, half a century ago, and we still feel. I mean, uh, Koreans in general still feel that, uh, even, even though uh, even for myself, who um, was born way after it, uh, we 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 still grow up with uh, an awareness of how much the occupation hurt Korea. So that was one that is one um, critical perspective, one criticism of the broadcast. Um, another aspect that I was a little that I found puzzling was that during the broadcast, there was so much focus on on the current political tension between North and South Korea. And uh, there was so much focus on as on that and North Korea rather than Pyeongchang. And Pyeongchang is a there, there was so much to introduce about Pyeongchang, how, how beautiful it is, the, the, the unique culture there, and and um, even the environment where the um, athletes will be staying. Mm -hmm. But somehow the focus was too much placed on the uh, on the politics. I think that was a um, one of the sort of foregrounded aspects of the way the games were narratized. But I have to say I found it really inspiring to see North and South Koreans uh, playing together in team sports to see the sort of performance of a unified Korean identity in the opening ceremonies. Were there other signs or, or aspects of the opening ceremonies that an uninformed spectator might have missed that sort of suggest a kind of um, ethnic unity among Koreans North and South? Were the sort of symbols that were um, drawn from, uh, you know, older cultural practices. Are those understood as being sort of pan-Korean or, um, you know, sort of transcending the north-south border? Um, well, the song, uh, the song Arirang, uh, which was uh, introduced as an unofficial national anthem. Um, I mean, that's it, it's kind of a blues song. Um, about sadness, about parting, um, about that 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 ingrained sorrow, which represents um, a Korean, probably the, the the predominant Korean sentiment. Uh, that that was, I mean, that is a song that we all know. We learn it in in, in elementary school or even in kindergarten. We we um, we grow up uh, with that song. 
So, so to, to, to Koreans, it has a special place. Um, probably, I mean, that, that place probably changes over generation um, because now, you know, Korea has been developing so rapidly uh, and it's, it's, it's still, uh, even in five, ten years, there, there are massive changes um, and also not just within, but also its status internationally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so that song, Arirang, is probably one, <laughs> uh, uh, one of the ele- elements in performance that could, that, 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 that's likely um, at a different place to international audiences. <laughs> Well, Sarah, Harvey, or Walter, um, what did you guys think about the broader um, event? Uh, there's so much going on. It often seems as though the opening ceremonies, the closing ceremonies give this sense of a kind of global audience and the place of a particular nation and, and nationalism um, in a global community. But there's also so much going on in terms of the events, the broadcast, the athletes. Well, one of the things that Walter highlights that I think is is really interesting, uh, and particularly in terms of the opening ceremonies, which are, unlike other events which have performance elements, are intended exclusively as a kind of performance. Right. The interesting thing about the about the opening ceremonies of any Olympic Games or any kind of spectacle on that scale is that the intended audience is a, is obviously a mediated one. The a live viewer in that space. Uh, can only see a small fraction of what's happening and may increasingly be involved in the spectacle itself to the point of one's own perspective being completely obscured, either because you're holding a sign over your head or because the larger group is creating the image that is that is communicated. Um, in terms of the, the, I was really struck by the drone, the coordinated drone performance, and I wonder what that looked like live because it read so beautifully through the media. Um, but as Walter points out, not all media is equal. So these events that get scaled for quote unquote global media then go through these very specific national filters, right, of specific broadcasters and, and really get truncated to the point where sometimes meaning is lost. I, I remember with the, the summer games in, in London, this became the case, right, where people were like, uh, you know, who is that guy wandering around in the beard and top hat? You know, because no one in, on the NBC broadcast ever bothered to tell us that that was Brunel, right? The city planner of the city of London and, and what he was doing, what Kenneth Branagh was doing by pointing everywhere. And so um, I just, you know, when we start thinking about media, it seems to me that that in performance, we now we now are talking on multiple scales and through multiple filters uh, so that there isn't actually now any one performance. There's perhaps a singular event, but no one medial perspective or medial uh, view on it. Do you guys think that those opening ceremonies are sort of resolving into a genre that's fairly fixed or predictable? Um, I don't mean to take anything away from the the opening ceremonies in Pyeongchang, which I thought were really magnificent, but it seems as though there's you think about the games in in China and Sochi, Russia, it seems as though there's this sort of, you tell the whole historical um, uh, story of a nation. I mean, actually, it was that I think was perhaps less emphasized in in the Pyeongchang um, uh, ceremonies. You didn't get this sort of like phase by phase development out of this primordial past of. Korea, but you do get the sense of 
uh, a sort of Korean sense of its place in the world, the emphasis of technology, the emphasis on pop music. Um, are there sort of generic elements that we see being repeated in order to speak to this global spectatorship? Well, I mean, I mean, there is that sense of unification, you know, and which kind of makes sense that, like, you know, if the premise of the Olympics is uh, going to be that all these nations are coming together to coexist peaceably for two weeks or however long the Olympics are, you, it would make sense that the host nation has to offer a narrative of, of, of unification, right? So you can think about, you know, Australia in the Summer Games making amends with uh, its Aboriginal population by having Kathy Freeman like the torch. Uh, you can think about Muhammad Ali, you know, in the U.S. Summer Games in Atlanta. Um, I think within China, um, you know, there was that moment where, um, you know, there were a whole bunch of, of ethnicities, uh, you know, across the nation coming together uh, to offer an image of reunification. Um, you know, so I think that that is something that you see again and again, uh, that you have to present yourself as a whole unified place before you can uh, offer a narrative of peace. Yeah, yes, I agree. I mean, there is the Olympic spirit of unification, but I've, I've I wonder, though, um, I mean, since the Olympics is an international competition, if there is a competitive element in, 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 in even the ceremonies, for example, I mean, the Beijing Summer Olympic opening ceremony was, it, it was magnificent, it, and some public figures even hailed it as, as one of the best. And, uh, uh, and, and I wonder if, 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 if nations, I mean, in the spirit of the Olympics and, and in the spirit of unification, consider that as part of their planning of their ceremonies. Um, how, do, how do you, it, it's, it's also, a, I, I believe, um, like the evolving technology, the evolving uh, performance, um, awareness of, of its performance, and, the, and even, even while acknowledging that it is, it is a ritual uh, play a part in it um, as as each nation prepares its opening ceremony. Well, it's one of the most powerful forms of propaganda that any individual country is granted now. I yes. mean, you know, and I would say that that really is a history that goes back to 1936 Berlin Olympics and the the explicit use of the Olympic Games and the dominant mode of media at the time, cinema and Lenny Riefenstahl's film, to perpetuate uh, Nazi superiority and to distort the actual competition of the games um, through the circulation of media images that perpetuated the sort of idea of, of white Aryan superiority. Um, and, you know, while we might hold the Nazis at, 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 at one extreme, I don't know that that any Olympics is ever totally free of those kinds of propagandistic impulses. Uh, they become more subtle over time, but but there's there's something. I mean, if you just consider the enormous resources that a country is required to allocate, um, and the great controversy, for example, in Rio, you know, in in all the resources that went towards the Olympic Games and had demonstrably negative impacts on individual populations um, and areas within the country, you know, you, you, you know, you, you want to know that you're getting something for that investment in resources. And it seems to me that that massive, you know, political and, and social and global competitive propaganda and a positioning of oneself 
as a as a, a market leader in technology, for example, is a really important is a really important part of sure. that. Sure. Well, I think that that competition is absolutely part of it, and there's competition to have a great opening ceremony and to give that present that image of national. Um, yeah, prosperity, um, growth, modernism or modernization. Um, but it's also the structure of the games are a kind of sublimation of of nationalist impulse and competition. It's one of those things that I, you know, I feel in typical years happy rooting for the American athletes because I feel like that's a kind of soft nationalism that we're allowed to enjoy, right? You want to root for the American athletes or root from your root for the athletes from your home nation because you know, competition in sports is a great way to exercise those feelings. I had complex feelings this year. Uh, I wasn't rooting against American athletes, but America's image in the world is um, changed recently. And there, I found myself having complex feelings, you know, wanting individual American athletes to, to win, but also thinking that maybe the feeling of America winning is not the same <laughs> as it used to be. I watched a lot of ice dancing. Um, one one of the features, <laughs> ice dancing, <laughs> figure skating. I mean, these were these were the events they scheduled in prime time, and I think they're always a big feature of the of the Winter Olympics. Um, but I, I, it was very interesting to think about the sort of uh, sexuality and gender dimensions of those events. On the one hand, you had Adam Rippon, the American uh, figure skater who is now um, uh, openly gay and and sort of out for the first, I think he's the first American uh, figure skater to be out publicly. And that's very cool. You had Johnny Weir and and Tara Lipinski giving their commentary with their um, extremely um, carefully uh, selected uh, costumes that gave another kind of uh, dimension to the the performance of sexuality, I would say. Um, but those events, the paired skating events, are so heterosexual and gender normative that you wonder if at a certain point they have to think about that genre of performance as being able to incorporate, I don't know, couples events that aren't male-female. There's so much coding of sexual compatibility and expression in those events that it it's it's both what makes them really exciting, but also makes them strange. I think, mm. particularly when there are siblings competing together. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, and I love the siblings. Yeah, but, don't get me wrong. I'm like a big Shibsib fan, but oh yeah, oh, yeah. Shibsibs, they're fantastic. Rule. Yes, and even the, the 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 category of male or female, which is no longer accepted in the in in. Even in, in the current student body, for example, there's so much emphasis on preferred gender pronouns. Um, but while institutionally in the Olympics, it it doesn't seem to have reached there, like just the changing, um, ev- evolving uh, <laughs> awareness of, 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 of gender and sexuality. And am I right that the those skating events are the only Olympic competitions? I mean, you have male, female, individual and team competitions separated. That's a sexual dynamic or sexual difference that's that's reinforced. I mean, the, the, the issue of gender around the Olympics and any kind of um, high-level competitive sport, uh, there is no gender binary. And in fact, right, it, the, the gender rules are, are policed very rigorously at the, at the level of chromosomal testing, right? Like mm-hmm. who qualifies as legitimately and acceptably 
female for the purposes of competition. And this becomes an incredibly fraught venue when we start thinking about, you know, um, at what age did did you transition? And we're seeing this in colleges, right, in terms of the NCAA recognizing uh, student athletes who are gender non-binary and or transitioning uh, from one gender identity to another. And, you know, at what point do hormones, right, because, of course, the the medical techniques of, of transition are the same as or similar to performance enhancing drugs in a, in another context. So, I mean, there's, there's a, I mean, we're talking right. about uh, uh, some of the most highly regulated bodies in the world. So, uh, Walter, let me just say thanks so much for, for um, guesting on the podcast and for sharing your views. Oh, it is a pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. Bye, Walter. It's good to see you. Bye. Next, we wanted to spend some time talking about Adrienne Kennedy. Her new play, He Brought Her Heart Back in a Box, was uh, produced by Theater for a New Audience in New York. Um, this has brought back to people's attention the contributions of one of the, um, in my opinion, one of the greatest living American playwrights. Um, we read some literature about this play and about Adrienne Kennedy, including a long interview that she did with Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Um, so I don't know where to begin, guys. I mean, uh, Harvey, maybe you could start us off by giving your sense of how Adrienne Kennedy fits into um, the pantheon of 20th century American dramatists? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Adrian Kennedy is, is probably best known for uh, her play uh, Funny House of a Negro of 1964, uh, which was a play that was written um, to give you some backdrop. As in, call, in college, she was a literature major. Uh, she got married early, moved to New York City uh, from Ohio, and you know, sort of found herself basically at home a lot, <laughs> you know, uh, and writing in her diary. Uh, and she began to sort of write shorter pieces that eventually uh, graduated into this play uh, that offered perspective into her life. It's, it's very episodic. I think Hilton Owls in The New Yorker refers to her, probably the best description I've, I've read thus far is as a film scenarist, you know, as a person who writes these very, very short sort of scenes um, of life that offer a sense of a snapshot of her her complicated uh, negotiation for what it means to be um, a, a married woman uh, in 1960s or 60, 60s America, kind of constrained to domesticity, you know, kind of wanting to actually go out and be her own independent uh, 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 force uh, within the arts field. Uh, but she had a fascinating life. She sort of traveled around. She was in Ghana and other places. Uh, but she's continued to write in this style. And in, the, in that style, uh, which has offered a sense of of her own subjectivity, many people um, um, in terms of, of across all gender and racial and ethnicity identities uh, have found something to see um, of themselves within her work. Um, so that's inspired a generation or more of, of artists. Um, the Signature Theater, actually every so often the Signature will do a retrospective of her work. Uh, so that's quite common. It's not uncommon to have major playwrights such as Susan Lori Parks uh, or more recently Brandon Jacobs Jenkins uh, talk about the meaning of uh, Adrian Kennedy to their work. So I think that she's a person who is a pillar of contemporary American theater uh, and certainly a long-lasting influence. In reading the uh, the interview with with Jacob Jenkins, the 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 element that I that hit me and I, I thought was really wonderful is uh, he asked her at one point how she feels or you know about, about identifying as a playwright. 
And she talks about how she doesn't actually think of herself as a playwright because her experiences of working in the theater were were never great, I guess. And she says, you know, the, the people who that she really connects to are the academics because they kept her work alive uh, by Xeroxing and copying and teaching and and recalling. And, and I will say, you know, I teach I teach her work uh, at least once a year in, in one of my classes. It's pretty core to when I teach uh, playwriting and dramaturgy. Um, and it's always a surprise to students and, and always a happy surprise. So I just to reinforce what you said, Harvey, about the idea that everybody can find something meaningful in this work. And, and I think there's a special affection for her, perhaps in, in academic theater, uh, even in comparison with other with other forms. But it's great to see her her you know that she has a new play being produced in New York. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's true. I mean, there, there's an interview uh, that she sat for with Susan Laurie Parks, in which she says something similar about how you know, it's the academy that you know through photocopying her plays and sharing them and teaching them, you know, has actually given her a career. Um, and and. I think sometimes we can be anxious about our status as academics and you know, what do we do and how do we relate to contemporary theater. But this is a perfect example of how uh, you know, you know, our ability to place a spotlight um, and to keep the spotlight on a person whose work is extraordinary uh, has actually enabled generations of artists. There's also a, a, a wonderful parallel between what you said, uh, uh, Harvey, and and thinking also about Carol Churchill, and these these careers that start in constrained domesticity, right? And I don't yes. just mean that as a physical constraint, although that's certainly part of it, like being a a mother in the 1950s and the 1960s with young children and at home with a husband who leaves at a certain time every day and doesn't come back until a certain time every day, and and the sort of wonderful like weirdness and and non naturalism that comes out of those experiences, both in, in Churchill and Kennedy, I think is is really wonderful. I think the, who is it, uh, Rizzo in the Theater Times, right? Jessica Rizzo has this piece where, and I think the first line is what she calls the explosively feminine theater of, uh, of, of Audrey and Kennedy, which I think is, is, is really fitting and, and, and another element that I love in this work. Yeah, I, I responded really to the, um, I mean, her, I think of her as being as much as she's more cinematic in certain interpretations, I feel like she's very poetic. I feel like, you know, every playwright is a poet in a certain sense, but that with Kennedy, you really get this strong sense of a private world um, opened up with real clarity through careful use of language and a sort of simple and straightforward use of language that, in, exists in real tension with the images that she creates, which can be, I don't know, narratively complex, uh, sort of fantastic in the way they bring living people and dead people and historical characters and fictional characters all together. But then there are just these sort of straightforward statements that are really powerful you know, one thing we really haven't talked about so far, though, and that is mentioned in the interview and mentioned in some of the material we read is the the sense of pain that she communicates and the that being part of why she has been, um, I don't know, maybe less produced or her reception has been mixed because she really just goes straight at what I take to be a kind of personal sense of um, anguish about her family about the 
intricacies and and violences and uncomfortable truths of um, black life in the United States. Um, For that reason, when I have taught uh, Funny House, for example, I have not always had great (laughs) reactions from my students. Sometimes students sort of uh, close down or they don't want to go for the really sort of uncomfortable topics or talk, acknowledge the uncomfortable topics that she brings up. I think that must be as much a result of the way I, you know, put her plays in a syllabus or teach her as anything else. But I'm interested to hear more about more from you guys about the way that students have responded positively to her. My students have been sort of tentative. I haven't taught her in, geez, uh, like a decade. <laughs> and I, I, I will admit in, in fairness, um, but I do think, just to go to the premise of the question, I think part of the reason why there was some resistance to her work being staged you know, was that people couldn't put her in a box, right? I, I think that um, she's kind of like Alice Childress in a way, in terms of her work appears in different decades, it gets rediscovered by people, and you don't know how to place her within a timeline. And if you think about like her emergence in the mid '60s and then certainly early '70s, like there was really a push within black theater toward a, a narrative theater that was explicitly that was explicitly political, uh, and her theater is political, you know, but it's a it's a it's of a different style. Um, so I think that you know there weren't communities racing to produce her work in the way that there was communities looking to. Um, you know, uplift the work of a Baraka, right? Or uplift the work of a Soya Sanchez. Um, so I think that was one of the issues. I mean, she's identified with the black arts movement, but doesn't sort of fit easily into that right. category, right? When I've taught her, there are usually three waves of reactions. Uh, and the first wave is the, is, is the reaction when I teach anything that's non-realist, non-narrative, um, or, or, you know, or just in an unfamiliar form, which is like, I don't get it. I don't know what this is. Um, and so I've developed certain strategies around how to get over that hump or how to preempt that hump or how to, you know, condition. So now I've started teaching um, Gertrude Stein right before um, uh, oh, Audrey and Kennedy. And so by comparison, like Kennedy's, you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> this makes so much sense to me. Look, I see the characters in the place and... Um, you know, and so I think it, it's, it's, it's as much juxtaposition as it is anything else. Um, so that's been, you know, that's, that's been effective. But I also just feel like, um, you know, with, with her work as well as when I've taught, uh, you know, Shange's, you know, for colored girls or, or any kind of difficult work, you know, putting it in people's mouths and bodies is the first step. Um, and Stein for that matter, you know, like when you read a big chunk of, of Stein's text with no punctuation and no shape, uh, you know, and no obvious story, it's unbelievably tricky to figure out what's going on. You know, same thing with Funny House of a Negro or, or a movie star has to star in black and white. But then you say it out loud and you start making physical vocal choices and all of a sudden there's a shape to it. You can talk about why you're making those choices. You're talking about, you know, how much air one needs in order to start a phrase, where it should end, where it should begin, what the conversation, what the relationships are. And so, I mean, that's, frankly, that's why I teach theater and not English. <laughs> I want to sit in on one of your classes. That's you are most have. welcome and anytime, Harvey. We, like could, we can make that there. happen. I want to do that. I don't know if I would just let you sit there. I would probably, you know, 
make you make you work a little bit. But it would be it would we, we could absolutely have you come anytime. That'd be great. No, the problem is if I went, you know, and then I and then I contribute in some way, they'd be like, you know what, the class just kind of dropped a bit in quality. <laughs> like, you know, that, that Harvey guy's a nice guy, but like, you know, 100% Sarah is way better than like 90% Sarah plus 10% of the guy. I, just I, th- that is not a scenario <laughs> that I think is very realistic, but you know, I'm kind of an avant-gardist, so what do I know about realism? <laughs> All right. Um, we also wanted to talk on this episode about uh, retirements in the field. On one hand, this is a topic that I think it's kind of difficult to approach because of the way people um, retire in academia. Very frequently, there's not a, you know, announcement and a party um, or an edited volume or a conference or the other sort of uh, ceremonial um, ways of paying tribute to someone's contribution. Sometimes people just stop teaching, but they keep advising, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But we noticed that especially if you think about the last few years, there have been a lot of really um, important uh, careers that are wrapping up in theater and performance studies. Um, we, you know, of course, noticed that Richard Schechner celebrated his career at NYU um, earlier this month. Um, uh, I, I'm not certain of this, but I believe that Joe Roach is expected to retire soon. Um, of course, uh, Sandra Richards, who was celebrated at Astor last year, um, uh, Gay Gibson Sema, Lawrence Senelik, who I believe is retiring or uh, close to it. Um, I hope some of these are Sue- true and we're not just spreading wild rumors about <laughs> Well, let's say this. I'm, just, that I'm there, teasing. I'm teasing. Camp, he's retiring. Yes. I, <laughs> I'm announcing everyone's retirement. Well, I mean, let's say this. Uh, some of these people are no longer teaching and are emeritus. Um, uh, some of these that seems people, like a good indication. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's it's. I think part of the issue is that when people retire from teaching, they frequently keep writing, they keep editing, they keep presenting at conferences. Um, you can carry on scholarly activity if you want to, um, you know, indefinitely. And so in a way, it seems rude to say, okay, and now they are done. Um, It's not always the case. Nonetheless, if you think about some of those names, um, uh, I don't know, Lawrence Senelik, Sue Ellen Case, Marvin Carlson, Eleanor Fuchs, um, you're looking at the ends of a sort of generation of um, uh, careers that were present at the formation of the field, right? If you think about 1970 to 2020, um, you're looking at the creation of a lot of standalone theater departments, um, the first waves of feminist theater scholarship, the cultural turn in the humanities, uh, the advent of performance studies as a paradigm, which I would argue is very closely related to that cultural turn. Um, the era of high theory. This is just that just gets us through the 1990s, right? So maybe there's not some milestone that we're living through right now, but there's certainly um, some of the signs of a kind of generational shift or a changing of the guards. Um, so I don't know. I, the, the question for you guys, for listeners, I suppose, is: um, Is this? Are, are we? living through a sort of generational shift or, or transition to um, uh, a, a younger generation of scholars leading the field? Well, I don't know about you, Harvey, or, or panel, but I, I feel like this is the moment that uh, was foretold when I was a graduate student, right? That was supposed <laughs> to usher in the great 
the great opening up of of tenure track <laughs> positions. Um, yes, and uh, it's you know it's coming about twenty years later than I was told it was going to come. Uh, that is true. But, it's totally true. But it is coming, and I'm not. I you know not to not to put a negative spin on on what is for all of these individuals happy news. Like I mean, these are esteemed, remarkable, valuable wonderful careers that have that have given uh, a lot to to many have been just enormously generative in the field but but i guess i i also feel compelled to sort of take that myth of the baby boomer retirement opening up great labor demand in <laughs> academia and kind of you know look around and say well if we are living through an era right now it seems like we're living through the era of of adjunctification and that that these you know, massive uh, figures retiring is not, in in every case, opening up lots of new opportunities, and and that they may not necessarily be the passing of a guard, but the first wave of what I fear may be a, a real changing of the professoriate in our field and how that exists at, at many institutions. That's a unfortunately a foreboding suggestion and maybe there's something to it you're, you're absolutely right though about the sort of illusion of a shift of retirements i remember being at a party in boston with lawrence Senelec and and having the you know the the tactlessness to sort of i i don't think i brought up whether or not he was going to retire but he was like yes you young graduate students are always looking at us and our retirements like you know like it's some buffet table that you're about to be able to approach, that there's this sense of the younger scholars imagining that there's going to be this wave of retirements and then that's going to sort of open up new prospects. And it, it, I think it, it certainly isn't going to have that sort of big effect that there's going to be a big bump in hiring. And that's a very good point. But what does it mean that we're sort of perpetually in the mindset of, generational shift or um, the sort of idea of a of a vanguard coming up and changing things. I think it might be a complete illusion. What I find interesting about this moment, or maybe not this moment, but imagining the future 15 years from now, uh, is that so I had the benefit in many ways, and all of us have that benefit of being students and being able to talk to the people who we quote. Right. Uh, certainly within theater and performance studies, uh, if you're working on race and genders, you know, primarily, uh, and 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 that's that's a rare privilege, right, to be able to read um, uh, Richard's work, right, and then to sit across from him and talk to him about it, you know, or or Joe's work or Lawrence's work, um, Sue Ellen's and others, uh, uh, Gay Gibson Chima's, uh, and and that's that's a gift uh, to be able to uh, go beyond the footnote. Uh, and and most people in other fields and other disciplines just have the experience of having some level of separation between uh, the core scholars within that field and themselves, often by generations. But we've been we've been lucky. We've been gifted uh, with with proximity. Uh, so it's just a matter of thinking about you know we're going into this future where um, uh, people will increasingly be known not as people but as just the as the floating idea. Uh, which is what the field does to people, but it's 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 new for us. I wonder also about um, the way people imagine their scholarly activity and their institutional activity, because 
in some of this um, generation, I think the field was very new. You get the sense that people were deliberately creating um, journals, professional associations. I mean, the professional associations, especially ATHA and Aster, are older. PSI is younger. But the, you got the sense that people understood in in advocating for a standalone theater performance studies department in creating something like PSI in um, publishing books like um, uh, critical theory and performance that they're building the infrastructure and the literature of an autonomous scholarly field and to me I wonder sometimes I wonder if I have that same sense of purpose in my activity or if I'm just sort of enjoying the structures that have been created to you know produce my research and teach and I wonder if when these um, you know more senior folks are retiring if the contemporary scholars are going to have the same sense of um, purpose in keeping a field going as its own thing and not a part of you know literary studies or or the other sort of interdisciplinary um, uh, nodes. Does that well, make sense to you guys? It, it does. I mean, I think that any any field, and frankly lots of subfields, I think fall into this category also, kind of worth worth attending to are, are almost always in the process of continual reinvention and expansion. I mean, if you sort of, you know, look at, at what's been going on in the MLA and they're reconciling with, the public humanities, the digital humanities, the changing shape of literature and literary studies, the the status of language departments within the academy. I mean, there's there's, it's you know we're we're a, a constantly evolving and changing ecosystem um, that is growing and changing and 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 uh, and doing this. I think. You know, and I, I sort of speak to to you both and to people like us as um, what we'll kindly call I don't know mid career scholars. Indeed, <laughs> that sounds great. Right? Indeed, um, which is to say that I think the I really think that yes. So the the the, the group that is retiring um, uh, has had enormous impact and influence in shaping and um, and and setting out parameters for the field that that frankly were were there to be beaten against as much as they were to be embraced. And I think that, you know, they there are some real pioneers there who now are are lauded and esteemed, but I think individually went through periods of of of, of real tension and 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 duking it out and, and probably absorbed things that, you know, I can't imagine. I think for us, you know, we've been we've been in this and I'll sort of again the sort of mid-career Gen Xers to put it in generational terms. Like we've we've really benefited <laughs> from that and we've moved into those institutions, you know, right at the tail end of when those jobs were available and uh, and we came into a very, you know, I'll just speak for myself. I came into a very different labor market than the one that um, graduate students are confronting now. I think our challenge is not to build a field but to sustain it and to build equitable room and to keep the advantages that we enjoyed going for those who are still emerging under us. And this is why I think, you know, what Noe Montez has been doing at Tufts is so valuable in terms of understanding the scope of graduate education. It's why Heather Nathan's work with new paradigms in graduate education through Aster um, has been really influential. And, And I think if you are going to find larger institutional field wide 
meaning in in your you know research teaching and, and service right now it, it it's not necessarily in in inventing or reinventing a field or a canon it's about sustaining and keeping open possibilities that uh, for those coming behind us because frankly I like talking to people older than me that I cite but I also really like talking to people younger than me that I cite too and I am very aware that particularly in my weird little subfield of you know, technology that man, the, 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 the horse hooves are fast approaching. Right. And I'm, I'm just like, I'm barely <laughs> keeping up, you know, being uh, overwhelmed. And so I need to learn. And from, the, the, the metaphor is that you'll be trampled if you fall behind. Is that Well, it? I'm going to get trampled at some point. It, it's really, it's just a matter of when, not if, uh, and, and that's okay with me. I, you know, at some point, like what I have to say will be much less interesting and important than what the folks coming up behind me have to say. And, you know, Probably already is. So, um, so I sort of I welcome the onslaught. Uh, maybe the horses all go around me. Maybe it's like more of like a, a chariot than a than a stampede <laughs> kind of scenario. Um, but whatever it is, we need to make sure that I think we're not pulling up the you know the rope ladder behind us. I mean, and, and I think there's a way in which like, like not to eulogize those who are still actively among us as scholars, uh, but just have chosen to. Uh, focus upon research and and committee service <laughs> by, by retiring, but but there's people like Jorge Huerta, you know, who is he's out there. He's he retired a while ago, um, you know, but he's never been more present on the conference scene. He's active as a mentor. Uh, he is producing scholarship. Um, so it, I think that you know, he serves as a model for us. That uh, you know, one may choose to step away from endless committee service uh, in order to focus upon uh, mentorship and. And, and writing, uh, but you can still be uh, of help, especially as, as Sarah was saying, this this trend toward adjunct hiring, uh, that you know there there is never been more of a need for professional career mentors than right now in terms of helping out um, a generation of emerging scholars, you know who you know are looking at a working environment in which more often than not they're being asked to work as adjuncts or part time instructors, you know so having an opportunity to be mentored to develop their own professional profile in pursuit of these longer, more stable careers is needed. Indeed, indeed. Um, well, guys, why don't we move on into our drafts? Um, drafts, regular listeners know, are our ideas in progress, what we're thinking about, what we're writing about, or thinking about writing about. Um, Harvey, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure, absolutely. My draft is... Um is uh is black panther uh and I, and I haven't seen it which is why that's my draft i i have i have absolutely nothing to say i've been in lots of conversations yeah. with people who, who are like what do you think about black panther and, and, I, and i'm realizing i'm repeating my sort of my anxiety around get out where it took me forever to see it um and uh, so i i have to talk to someone um on air in a couple of days about Black Panther, which means I will see it tomorrow. But right now, it's just like I have all these fragments of people's ideas about like, oh, how does it treat African Americans? You know, you know, what is the yeah. uh, quality of CGI in that in in in, in um, uh, CG, CG, CGI 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 yeah, yeah. CGI uh, in in that film? Um, 
you know, is this redefining the princess? And those are all questions that seem that seem super valid, but I really have no idea what they mean. I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> like your draft is, I'm going to go see Black Panther. Yeah, my draft is, I just don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will resist the urge to be the white guy who tells you all about my opinions about Black Panther. Um, but I give it a thumbs up. What's your draft? Mine. Yes. Yeah, um, so my draft, I've, I've been doing nothing other than rehearsing uh, and thinking about rehearsing. Um, but I, I wanted to take my draft just briefly to talk uh, about uh, friendship and to give a sort of moment of uh, memorial remembrance of uh, Professor Roy Roussel who was my uh, chair and colleague in the Department of Media Study at the University of Buffalo. He passed. He was my chair, too. Oh, was he? Oh, right, of course, because you're. I worked with him, yes. uh, So Roy passed away just a couple of days ago. And uh, Roy was uh, uh, like a really close friend. Um, We rode bikes together a lot and and was a big reason why I have the kind of career I have and, and became so involved in, in, in media study. And so I, I miss him terribly. And, and there's a, uh, a sense of, a grave sense of loss. Uh, and, and so it's, you know, it's really interesting losing someone who has been so personally meaningful as well as so professionally uh, meaningful. And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, when you talk about the field and, and a generation moving on, Roy was a really pretty extraordinary uh, individual. And so my, my heart goes out to his sons, uh, Morgan and Cooper, and particularly his partner, Leslie. I, I, I remember when I arrived at the University of Buffalo in 1998, fall 98, uh, for a master's degree. Roy was the chair of the department, uh, and I would, uh, I'd stop by and talk to him all the time. Uh, and I remember he would say, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge of being a chair is to get through your email, right? Because I remember this is a moment before smartphones. Um, you know, so you'd arrive in your office and there'd be this flood of emails, um, you know, and just over the course of the year uh, that I was there, uh, he basically, you know, gave me a, uh, the primer on how to become a department chair, which is something that I clearly just pocketed and, and remembered, you know, for the like years later when it became useful. Uh, but he was the, the nicest guy, such a nice guy. Yeah, crazy smart and wore it very, very lightly. Uh, The most irreverent person I ever met. That's remarkable. I don't really feel like I can follow that. Um, 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 My draft is uh, just very pointy um, sort of intellectual history discovery. I'm working on this project on social theory and performance. You know, my sort of big thesis is that the the component of the intellectual history of the field that we know the least about in spite of its importance is sociology and social theory. Um, And I'm teaching our seminar on performance theory for our master's program and and reading Richard Schechner. Uh, Right now we're reading the the essays published together as performance theory and then we're reading between theater and anthropology next week. Um, And the more I look into this and the more I think about performance theory and social theory together, the more I realize that Emile Durkheim is actually a kind of important figure in our field and that it's completely surprising to me. But in addition to Durkheim being cited by uh, Goffman multiple times in the presentation of Self in Everyday Life, in addition to him being cited by Victor Turner as one of his two big sort of intellectual formative forces, 
you can sort of see it in Schechner as well. I think Schechner maybe cites Durkheim by name once, but there's this sense of the collectively maintained psychological states that are put into being through performance, through ritual, um, and the sort of function of those things as maintaining the equilibrium or maintaining the stability of a society that I think it's sort of a, an assumption that is in early performance studies literature. And to me, it's totally surprising because I think of Durkheim as being conservative. I think of structural functionalism, which is a facet of social theory he's identified with as being conservative. But it's not necessarily conservative. There's a sort of Marxist side of structural function, uh, structural functionalism. Um, and so I won't go on further, but uh, my sort of like research discovery of the last couple of weeks has been Durkheim, Emil freaking Durkheim. So there you have it. Guys, it's been a, a pl- <laughs> it's been a pleasure, um, as always, to talk to you guys, listeners. Thanks for for listening, and um, we'll be back. And thanks, Walter. Yes, and thank you, of course, uh, Walter, for for contributing. And um, we will be back at you soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.